The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 65 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. A couple weeks ago, I saw a post in a breast cancer group by men. It was around joint and muscle challenges, possibly due to medication. This is something I think a lot of us may be facing and not really making the connection to the meds. Ironically, this has been coming up a lot in the studio this week. In this particular case, Myra and I started messaging offline, and the more we were chatting, the more I was learning about her journey, and I knew that her story could really help others who are finding themselves in the midst of navigating different challenges over the course of many years, and doing it from this place of faith and positive progress. I am really excited to have Myra Persky here today to share her story. Welcome, Myra. I'm so excited to have you here with me today. I know you've been on quite a journey with your health and with your recent move. So I'm so excited for you to share with everyone today about your journey, kind of start to present. We're just going to go ahead and jump on in. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so my journey to uh, breast cancer started probably back in 2009. It actually started uh, when I was a perfectly healthy person and all of a sudden I wasn't anymore. I started to feel very sick. And uh, I saw a nurse practitioner and told her how exhausted I was. Memory, I just wasn't feeling well. And she said to me, well, you know, when I was in college, I was feeling that way and found that I had uh, a thyroid problem. So let me take uh, some blood work and see, you know, how your thyroid function is working. And I said, okay. So got my thyroid lives back and it appeared as though I had very high calcium and parathyroid hormone in my blood. So she sent me to an endocrinologist. I don't know if you know what parathyroid glands are, but they're four little rice-shaped sized glands by your thyroid that regulate the calcium levels in your blood. And calcium in our blood is very important to the functioning of our body in all kinds of aspects, not just, you know, circulating calcium, but putting calcium back into your bones. And so I went to the endocrinologist and he did a sonogram of my neck and found that I had two somethings in my neck. And so long story short, it ended up being that I had thyroid cancer and a parathyroid tumor. So I um, ended up having surgery to remove the thyroid tumor, which Apparently, I'd had for several years, at least 10 years, because it was a very slow-growing cancer. And the surgeon took out uh, part of the parathyroid. He couldn't apparently get it all, so he clipped it. I forgot about that part. But I went through treatment, which includes radioactive iodine treatment. And eventually, I started feeling well again. So that was in... 2010 when I had my surgery. I'm actually going to backtrack here right now. So I, I'm going to go back to 2008 because in 2008, I uh, had a mammogram. I started getting mammograms fairly young because I had kind of lumpy breasts. And so um, I started getting my mammograms early just to be sure that I was okay. And in 2008, uh, I was diagnosed with Atypical duct dysplasia. Okay. That is just some like some cells in the duct itself. And it's not normally cancer, but it's kind of like the preliminary to cancer. It can become cancerous. And so I had a lumpectomy for that. That was in 2008. In 2009, after my mammogram, 
I started having like this uh, clear liquid coming out of the same breast where I'd had the surgery, the right breast. It was a liquidy discharge. And that's when it was discovered that I had the papilloma. And that's like a wart that's in the duct, the milk duct. And so I had another surgery for that in the same breast. So that was 2008. I had the atypical ductal dysplasia. 2009, I had the papilloma. 2010, I had the thyroid cancer surgery. And all of this, I went through pretty much on my own because I lived in Virginia. When I moved to Virginia, I don't have really family there other than my son, who was in high school at the time when I started going through all this. And then my uh, husband and I were separated. We weren't together. So I, I did find a support group for the thyroid cancer online. Um, there's an organization called FICA.org, and they have, for resources, a lot of information for thyroid cancer. Uh, they have, we all have to go through a low iodine treatment before, uh, low iodine diet before treatment. And so they have a recipe book. And so I followed that a lot. It was a, a group that I don't even know, remember the name anymore, but it was an email group. And we even had people who were in the medical field in the group and would answer a lot of questions. So I found that very uh, comforting and helped me kind of along and figure out how to take care of myself. So my attitude after I went through treatment and I started feeling well and after getting yearly ultras neck ultrasounds and everything coming back okay, I started to say, okay, I'm done with this. I'm okay. I got to move on. I'm not going to stress out about it anymore. And so life proceeded until I started feeling sick again. And I went to see my endocrinologist again, telling him that I started to feel like I had the parathyroid problem again. And he said, well, you know, he ran some tests, calcium levels, vitamin D levels. People who have parathyroid problems have low vitamin D levels. Most of the population these days have low vitamin D levels, unless you're supplementing. Correct. And, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have a parathyroid problem. It's right. calcium levels. So, yeah. and the parathyroid hormone levels. And so I gathered up all my paperwork and made an appointment at Johns Hopkins with a doctor there, well-known parathyroid surgeon. And he kind of blew me off. He knew my doctor in Virginia because I did tell him that my doctor, my endocrinologist in Virginia didn't seem to be too concerned about it. And so he just kind of blew me off. Well, I knew something was wrong with me. Yeah. And so I started researching and I found this uh, doctor in Tampa who has a very famous clinic. And that's all they do is parathyroid surgeries. Had a phone call with them, sent them all my paperwork, and he personally called me back and he said, yes, you do have a parathyroid problem. So this was in 2017. Flew down to Tampa, had my surgery, and he ended up taking out that parathyroid that was clipped because it had grown back. Gotcha. They will grow back if you don't take them out. So this was 2017, 2008, I had breast surgery, 2009, I had breast surgery, 2010, I had thyroid cancer surgery with parathyroid, and then 2017, again, a parathyroid surgery. And people who have thyroid cancer, it's not uncommon for people, women who have thyroid cancer to also develop breast cancer. And the reverse is true. It's not uncommon for women with breast cancer to develop thyroid cancer. So isn't this interesting? I'm just going to jump in here because my husband had thyroid cancer after my breast cancer diagnosis. Now he'd been being followed for a number of years, but just about a month after my diagnosis, my aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer and her her husband had had thyroid cancer a couple years prior. Wow. And 
I started to wonder, and now that you're making the correlation, right? Like you would think in one body, it could be biological, which it could be biological. But I'm also wondering if there's some environmental component, which also would, you know, give us the same exposure. But so interesting that you say that because that's a, a correlation I haven't heard before. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my endocrinologist, because I was still following up yearly with him and I told him, you know, come 2018, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So when I went up to him, went to visit him during one of my visits, he said, he was the one that also told me that it, that there is a correlation. It's not extremely common, but it, it is, there is some type of correlation and they don't know why. So anyway, so in 2018, I went for my annual mammogram and it was discovered that I have something suspicious in my left breast. Now my two other surgeries were in my right breast. This was in my left breast. Uh, Where I would normally go to get my mammograms, they don't really, they wouldn't really release me until the radiologist had seen my x-rays, my mammograms, and told me that I was okay for me to wait. Well, this time was taken particularly long. And then the uh, uh, radiologist called me in to speak to her, and she told me that she wanted to do an ultrasound because they found this area. And I've been researching and looking about breast cancer, too, and I knew that when they see, because I have calcification in both breasts, and a lot of women who have dense breasts like me or a lot of women who have calcification doesn't normally mean that you're necessarily mean that you're going to get breast cancer. Right. But I had read, you know, that there are, you can have little patterns of calcifications and that's what they look at. And so that's what I had. And she showed them to me on the x-ray and she says, we would like to do an ultrasound. So I thought, you know, O-S-H-I-T. Yeah, it's... <laughs> So she said, after doing the ultrasound, she said, yeah, she says, I think it would be good for you to get a biopsy just to make sure that it's not anything serious. So I did. I ended up going and doing my biopsy. Everyone was very nice at, uh, at the radiology. I don't know if I can say who, what clinic I went to, but. You can. What, when people are happy, I'm always like, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, Fairfax Radiology, they, I had been going and getting all my mammograms with them since 2003, and uh, I had seen them progress a lot during those, you know, years from 2003 to 2018, where I went, you know, for my biopsy, and uh, so I was very happy with them. I found them to be very professional. They just rolled out some new biopsy technology as well. Oh, really? Yeah, I have a client that went um, in October, actually. Hmm. Nice. Anyway, so uh, went and did my biopsy, went to see my surgeon. I saw the same surgeon who did my two surgeries in 2008 and And he told me that I was a triple positive. That meaning that I was estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 positive. And I really didn't know much about breast cancer other than my, you know, my mother uh, passed away from breast cancer. She had lobular breast cancer. And uh, she was diagnosed as stage four when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she didn't, she died at the age of 68 after uh, being treated for five years. Wow. And this was in 1996. So they weren't quite as advanced with their treatments as they are now. Um, so this her two. Uh, I didn't realize that there are the different, how many different types of breast cancers there are. There are triple negatives, there are estrogen positive, progesterone positive, and then me that had all three, the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. And this Sometimes HER2, people are just HER2, which I thought was interesting too. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So this HER2, for people who don't know, I... I I printed out a, a paper to explain it because it's difficult for me to really be able to explain it. But it's it says that it's a HER2 positive breast cancer is a protein. The HER2 is a protein called human epidermal growth factor receptor 2. 
that's why it's called HER2. And it's it this protein promotes the growth of cancer cells. And about one of every five breast cancers, the cancer cells have extra copies of the gene that makes the HER2 protein. And these HER2 positive breast cancers tend to be more aggressive than other types of breast cancer. So I thought, okay, <laughs> what else can go wrong with me? Apparently, uh, this HER2 protein now is very treatable. Yes. And I was told in the old days when they didn't have the medication that they have nowadays, which is Herceptin, it was pretty much a death sentence. It would have been a death sentence for me. Yeah, it was as it was as likely as triple negative to become metastatic within the first five years. Right. And my lesion was only six millimeters. So it was tiny, tiny. And I didn't understand why. Because the surgeon gave me an option, either mastectomy or lumpectomy. And I didn't understand why, why, why it had to be so aggressive. Because he told me one year of Herceptin treatment, three months of Taxol chemotherapy, and radiation treatment. That's With the lumpectomy, yeah. With the lumpectomy, right. And I kept saying, I don't understand why you're treating me so aggressively. It's just so small. And he said, because that's the way it has to be treated. You just don't know what cells have may have gone through the body. So I did a lot of research online. I started reading about how to treat this particular type of breast cancer that I had. And after reading about it on the Susan Komen site, I think they have a lot of information and they do talk about the HER2 protein. And after speaking with him, and because it was caught so early, my recurrence rate was, it was like a 3% difference between my recurring rate, like 5% versus 8%, something like that. Yeah. I said, I'm not going to do mastectomy. I'm too old to go through that. I'm just going to do a lumpectomy. So that's what I ended up doing. And uh, he took out one sentinel node, and that was clear. And so I went through that regimen, chemo, a year of Herceptin, and uh, 19 radiation treatments. And I met a wonderful Facebook group called Lean on Me. <laughs> that's where we met. And that's where we met. And another support group. You know, I have found that in this journey, you have to find like people who are going through the things that you're going through and who have wonderful experiences and can provide guidance on, you know, things that you haven't thought about. And so I think that that's what has really helped me move forward and take a positive attitude and come to terms with my decision that I've made the best decision for me as an individual, right? Because we yeah. all have different, all of our circumstances are different. And every, I'm a real proponent that every decision that we make at every stage was the right decision at the time. Right. No matter what comes in the future, like as long as we feel good about the decision that we made today, there's no like woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yes. It's like we made, we got the education, we made the informed decision, we feel good about our decision and our decision is perfect. Yes, I agree. It's whatever's going on in your life at the time. And, and I think that the, the other thing that this I think is very important is that you find medical personnel who you have complete faith in because yes. um, without that reassurance, then that I guess, assistance in helping you make that choice that you want to make and interview doctors. I didn't because I, I had already had my surgery with this other doctor and he was, I liked him because he was very uh, happy-go-lucky. He joked with all the staff, but when it came down to business, you know, I told you just the way or the facts and the way they were. Yeah. And uh, so I liked that about him. And so that's where I am. Today, I um, am three years out. Um, I still panic every time I go and get my mammogram. 
Um, but I haven't had any changes. And um, uh, I moved to Delaware in, in October last year. So I am now, you know, looking for medical professionals in my area. And I've gone to the University of Pennsylvania and I've met with a physician there. And she also has told me that my recurrence rate is very low. And so I think that, you know, my lesson learned is that we need to get our mammograms because they always say mammograms save lives. Well, I consider they did for me because mine was caught so early because I, I went for my annual mammogram and that's where it was found. Yeah, that's I'm such a big proponent of that. I've been working on a graduate degree and one of the things that makes me crazy is when they talk about like overdiagnosing and then they use a screening as a false positives in a screening as a form of overdiagnosing and I'm like, "No." Yeah. No. <laughs> a false positive in a screening is just a check on like there's another procedure that comes after that to actually test whether that was right or not right getting a biopsy on a suspicious thing my mom's had many lumps removed over the years that were benign they still take them out they don't want them to mask something else like right. there's no no screenings <laughs> Training. Uh, and the other thing that I did too um, afterwards, just because I have two granddaughters, three granddaughters now, because my mother had breast cancer. Yeah. My father had colon cancer. I had thyroid cancer. I decided to go have genetic testing just to make sure that it wasn't, I didn't have a BRCA gene or BRAC. I'm not sure how you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah. And so I did that at Barrow's Hospital, I, I took the genetic, te genetic testing and I don't have the genes yeah. either for thyroid cancer or colon or breast. So it's, I don't, we don't have the genes in our family either because my mom has also been tested and she was tested after I was, but our providers feel pretty confident that in the next decade, we yeah. might. So it's oh, great really? that you had the test because that will stay in the records. So as they are correlating more and more and more data, they may find that we do have some correlation that just hasn't been determined yet because genetic testing is really still so kind of new. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I have so many questions about about the process you've gone through with finding new providers and the challenges you face with your move. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting. And make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you want to get started and you're happy to show up for yourself. And then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a coffee chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Myra and we have been talking about her health journey and so many things that I didn't, that I didn't know. I learned so much. One of the things that I really loved that you mentioned was about seeking out groups with people who had positive experiences. And not all of our experiences are positive, but I think looking for those positive experiences is so powerful. I agree. I find that uh, <clears throat> this group that I joined, the Lean on Me group, was uh, uh, very supportive. Everybody knows what everyone's been through. 
they've got great recommendations for plastic surgeons, for oncologists, for, you know, what symptoms, what treatments they've been through, you know, how they felt. And they're very supportive. Emotionally, I found that everybody was very positive. And uh, when you're going through that, that's what you need in life. You want that support from a community. And, you know, your family can give you only so much. But the people who have gone through what you have gone through can give you a different type of uh, emotional support than, than family members, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I have also found, like, I was very fortunate. My bilateral was fairly straightforward. I've had some bumps in the road here and there, um, some chronic pain challenges and things like that. But overall, I'm very happy with it. And what you hear or what you read is people who are unhappy. So then people feel like, oh, I don't want to do that. Like, that's awful. I don't want to have to do that. But then when you're in that like positive environment where you say, these are my choices. What is your experience? And people can then say, oh, I had a good experience because we don't talk about our good experiences. Right. And and we talk about what kind of implants they've used and what implants they feel are better. And so, you know, I would never have thought about that. Yeah, it's really beneficial to have other people. I've encountered folks who were really struggling to make choices because they just didn't have the right team. And then they did what you recommended and they interviewed a new potential team members to fill the spot where they were struggling. And all of a sudden, they're getting their questions answered and they feel comfortable and the decisions come rapid fire. Like, And then they look back and say, what was taking me so long? And it was really having that right team member. And most people don't plan for cancer. Let's be honest. It's overwhelming. It's terrifying. There's just a, like they open up the fire hose and just start spraying you with water and information that you can't absorb. (laughs) Yes. And I would say, because I did this journey on my own, I'm divorced. And uh, none of my children, I have three sons, and none of the sons were living with me at the time. And I find that if if you don't have a family member, take a friend with you to your appointments, because we get bombarded with information from the doctors that we can't really absorb. I don't remember half of what I was told. I just remember some of it. And then what I did learn, I learned from going online and researching myself. And then yes. I had questions. Yeah, it's it's an overwhelming procedure, the whole thing. And having a second set of ears is also good because they have different questions. Like my husband asked some amazing questions that hadn't even occurred to me. And I had a lot of, I had worked with a lot of survivors. So I was really familiar with the procedures and all of those things. And he was like, well, how are you going to put a seatbelt on to come home from the hospital? Like, I was like, oh, uh, good question. (laughs) Excellent. But I don't know. (laughs) Like he had all these practical questions. And so having another person, like just a second perspective is, can be really beneficial because it helps us fill in the gaps of of what we haven't thought of. Yes, absolutely. Which is really fantastic. So on that train of thought with interviewing people, I know you have moved recently and you're experiencing some challenges in terms of like finding providers and new providers. And I know the group has actually been able, um, we have some people in Maryland and a wider area than just locally here in Northern Virginia, where I am. But I would love for you to share about that a little bit. And then also about your recent mammogram experience. (laughs) Sure. Um, So I, when moving up here, you know, my biggest concern, because it takes, I lived in Virginia for 18, 19 years, I think it was. 
And so during that time, you go, you establish yourself and you have your group of doctors that you go to, you know, your favorite doctors. And so moving up here was a challenge because I had thyroid cancer and I really should be followed by an endocrinologist, even though I'm 11 years out. And then I had this breast cancer and I'm taking um, letrozole. And so I need to get that refilled and I need to be followed, get my mammograms. Fortunately, the oncologist in Virginia gave me a year's prescription worth of letrozole just to get myself established. So our someone in our support group had commented that they had seen a doctor at the University of Pennsylvania for her particular cancer. And so she commented how wonderful this doctor was, very knowledgeable. So I thought, okay, I'll go see this particular doctor since one of us has had experience with her. And so the University of Pennsylvania is about an hour from me, maybe 50 minutes, but it's in the center. It's in the UPenn medical area. So it's, it's a pain to get there, but nonetheless, I went and uh, the doctor was very nice. It was very well organized considering it's a university, you know, medical facility. I, I was very, I was impressed with it being so well organized. And uh, so I talked to the doctor about, I'm pretty much just doing, doing a yearly follow-up now. Um, and she uh, gave me a script for uh, my mammogram. And I told her, well, you know, I was kind of iffy about having it done here in, in Delaware. And she says that she has some patients from this area and that they go to the Helen Graham Cancer Center for their mammograms and that they're, they're you know, she has n- no concerns at all for the quality of the, of the mammograms there. So I did. I made my appointment. I got three years worth of x-rays from Fairfax Radiology, and they sent copies of all the reports that were sent to the doctors. And so I took all of my little paperwork and my my x-rays with me to my appointment. And it was very efficient going in. And as a matter of fact, I was actually shocked because on my way, I had forgotten to take my prescription with me for the mammogram. When I called to give them my my information for my appointment, they asked me who the doctor was, what kind of mammogram was, blah, blah, blah. So they had all the information. So I called them and I said, I'm going to have to turn around and go back to my house because I forgot my script at home. In Virginia, they would never let me get a mammogram without my prescription. And if I didn't have it, they would call the doctor's office and have it faxed in. And so they said, oh, no, no. They said, we've got your information here. She, She said, if you're in your 40s, you have to have a prescription. But if you're, I guess, in a different, like 50 and above, you don't have to have the written script with you, which I thought was kind of shocking. I didn't have the uh, wherewithal to really get into it because I was too nervous about getting there and I didn't have my script with me and I was worried about getting there on time. And so I arrived. Everything was very efficient went in and had my mammogram. They told me it would take 24 to 48 hours for me to get my results. And I said, well, then, and then what? I mean, do you call me? I mean, what's the process? And they said, oh, no, we'll send you a letter and your doctor a letter uh, about your results. And I said, okay. So I left and I was just stressed out because in Virginia, they wouldn't let me leave until the radiologist read my mammograms, and everything was clear. If there was anything suspicious, they would keep me there and do an ultrasound, which is what happened when I was diagnosed. They found something suspicious, did an ultrasound. The ultrasound confirmed something suspicious, and then I got referred to have a biopsy. So I had my mammogram on Thursday. Friday, I started getting all kinds of weird robocalls because she said if they found something suspicious, they would call me and have me come back. So every time the phone rang, uh, my heart dropped to my stomach because I was so stressed out about it. And I thought, they're, oh, they're calling me to tell me to come back if they found something suspicious. So I thought, and I'm going to have to wait until Monday because she said 24 to 48 hours for someone to read my mammogram. 
And so this was Friday, the second day, within my 24 hours, I said, I can't wait until Monday. And so I had signed up for the patient portal. I thought, let me just go. It was either Saturday or Sunday. So let me go and see if maybe my results are there because I can't stand this anymore. So I went in online and sure enough, it was there. The results were there. There was, they actually had taken my uh, x-rays from 2019, not last year, but from 2019 after I had finished my treatment to compare to now. And they said that there was no change. And they also, which I didn't know, on my right breast where I had had the ductal hyperplasia and the papilloma, apparently the surgeon had clipped me maybe where the papilloma was. He clipped me for something, but they found the clip. So I learned something new <laughs> reading reading the results on my, my mammogram. So I got a an email from the hospital yesterday asking me to complete a survey. And at the end of the survey, I my remarks were that I didn't understand why with a cancer patient, they wouldn't keep that person there until a radiologist looked at the x-rays and cleared you to go. Because it's very unnerving once you've been a cancer patient to have to kind of sit around and see if you're going to get that call. So uh, next year when I go, I will ask to see if I can get my results sooner than the next day or two days. Yeah, cancer survivorship is such a new, (laughs) so like this new area of research that researchers are starting to look at, which is sort of crazy. But we have, it's wonderful because we have so many people who are surviving, vibrant, healthy, thriving people now into the 20 million Americans, I think, are in this this place. And the mental component cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. It's, well, you stress, you stress days before you go, right? Because you know that this is coming up and, oh my God, I hope they don't find anything. And then you go through it and the right side was okay. The left side where I had the, uh, the, uh, the radiation treatments was just, it seemed like she squeezed that side extra hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so painful. I left just, I, I hadn't had that before. So, you know, every time when you move, the environment is different. The people who tend to you are different. The procedures are different. And so it's just, uh, it's it's a little nerve-wracking. So I, I just feel yeah. like they have to be a little bit more sensitive to to cancer survivors. Yes. I, I had a friend who, back in the fall, I think, went in for her mammogram and was having her annual appointment with her surgeon. And she's 14 years out. And they didn't keep her. And she's used to them. She waits. They bring the results out. And she was like, are you going to tell me my results? And they said, oh, we'll send them to your doctor. You have an appointment coming up with her, right? Like, she'll give them to you there. And she was like, what? Well, what do you mean? What? Why aren't you going to give them to me now? And then when she saw her surgeon, her surgeon said, oh, you're considered... Because you're past whatever mark, you're considered like your risk is no greater than the general population. So they treat it like every other mammogram. And I was like, oh, how do you feel about that? Yeah. It's like, I, I don't get mammograms anymore. So I was like, I'm, I'm not sure how I would feel about that. I had, but I had an MRI last June routine. My plastic surgeon will send me for them every three to five years. Um, to check the integrity of the implants. And this was like kind of the baseline three-year mark. And when I got there, the girl at the desk was like, why are you here? (laughs) And I said, checking the integrity of my implants. And she's like, this says with contrast. And I was like, freaking out. I don't know. Like, I didn't write it. 
uh, why are you asking me these questions? And I, I thought I was chill until they started like asking me all these questions about what I thought was just like this routine test that I was going for. I'm thinking like, I'm checking the box. I'm doing the thing. Right. And then I get home and it was later in the day. So my husband was actually home before me and I come in and my phone rings and I'm like, what? Why is the radiology center calling me? And I pick up the phone. I'm like, hello. And it's the radiologist. And he says, why were you here today? And I was like, a breast MRI? (laughs) And he was like, but why? (laughs) And I said, routine, like, checking the integrity of my implants. And he's like, why did they do contrast? I'm like, I don't know. Is that not like in my brain? I'm thinking if there was an issue with an implant, right? You would see contrast inside the implant where it didn't belong. Mm -hmm. Like that was my thinking. And I was like, I'm sorry, but I didn't write the order. Like if you have a question, please call my dog. I was like, did you find something? He said, oh, I haven't even read it yet. Wow. I said, what? What What do you mean? And he said, oh, I haven't read it yet. I just, I didn't understand why you were here today. I was like, you don't need to understand why I was here today. Just a doctor it. wrote an order for a test that I went to have. You, your job is to read said test and report back to my doctor. Don't call me questioning why I was there today. <laughs> and he was like, well, what, what was she looking for? And I said, this conversation is over. If you have a question for my plastic surgeon, you have her name on the order. You can call her. If you are so poor at your job that you cannot read, that you cannot read my MRI without me telling you what you're looking for, that's a different conversation. But that's not an appropriate conversation. And you're freaking me out and I'm hanging up. <laughs> and my husband was like, what was that about? And I'm like, I don't know, but they are freaking me out. I was fine. I was not concerned. Now I'm like terrified that there's something wrong. Right. And then I, I had to wait a week because he told me, I'll send the doctor your results. She'll tell you what they are. And I had an appointment. Obviously, she wasn't expecting to find anything. We were just baseline looking to make sure everything was good. I go in, I'm like, on the edge of my seat. Like, she walks in, I'm like, how was my MRI? And she looked at me kind of confused and was like, fine. Like, if it wasn't perfect, I would have called. Like, wait, wait a minute. And she starts looking and she's like, no, it's good. There's no issues. And I said, oh my goodness, the radiology center is all up in arms about this contrast thing. And she said, I always do that because then we get, we can see all the tissue and we know for 100% that there's nothing in there. Yeah. And she said, so now we know and we have the peace of mind that everything is clear and there's no sign of any cancer. Right. And I was like, awesome. Right. Well, I was wondering when you said you don't go, you know, for yearly mammograms anymore, how do they figure out that there's nothing growing where the breasts were? Yeah. So I guess it's on MRI. Yes. So okay. that is something that'll be, I mean, they do like palpate and check that way. But yes, so, and I, you, you still go through the anxiety that we do that when we have to get a mammogram. At some point, you have that anxiety because you're getting an MRI. Yes, and scan anxiety is re- or scanxiety as it, as it is referred to among among survivors. It is real, and it's important, I think, for cancer survivorship research to start becoming more formulated. In, because the medical community operates off research. So when the more research that they see and the more scientific, 
we can make our anxiety, (laughs) then that's how we'll be able to get more strides in that area. But yes, it is real. (laughs) Well, I I think that they have to be, and that's, yes. I mean, when we go through tests and such, I think that they have to be like on the spot, on the spot diagnosis, not don't make me wait, you know, for a couple days or a week like you did to to know whether I'm okay or not, because I'm the type of person, like when I found out I had thyroid cancer, I want to take care of this now. Now that I know, let's get it over with, get it treated or figure out how. And that I think for any cancer patient or maybe anyone who's suffering any health, ill, ill, any, any illness, that once you have a plan of action, a course of action, and you become proactive that, and you feel like you have some control over the situation is when you, I think that's when the healing starts, you know, once, once you start taking care of the problem, then everything else just kind of, I guess, fixes itself. I don't know how else to say that, but you get the gist. Yes. Yes. Once we feel like we're in the process of getting to the other side. Yeah. If you have some control, at least for me, because I'm a very controlling person anyway, I'm a type A personality. But once I feel like I have some control, some input where I'm becoming proactive, I feel better. I feel more at ease because I feel like I'm accomplishing my end goal. And that's to get well. Yes. And there are times where we feel like we can control this piece. We can't control that piece. So the piece that we can control you like kind of double down on that piece. I had was talking to one of my oncology nurses. I had a client who had ovarian cancer and she continued to see me twice a week for fitness classes. Um, We worked together privately and over time those changed. Like we started doing more restorative yoga that was calming the nervous system to offset some of the anxiety inducing drugs that she was on. But she needed to move. My husband was homesick one day and I called her and said, he's homesick. I think that we should because my practice is in a portion of my home. I was like, I think maybe we should take today off. And she's like, my white count is good. I'll be there in 20 minutes. like okay like I've told you I like banished him to like a corner of the house away from but she was like nope I'm good like my numbers are good and I will be there and I saw her twice a week right up until the week before she passed oh my and when I said that to the oncologist like when I told the oncology nurse that I had been in the infusion center before and we talked about who I had been there with. She was like, like very sad knowing the person had passed. And then my oncologist came in and said, I was a Pilates and yoga teacher. And I said, and I said to her, yeah, the person we were talking about, like she worked with me throughout her entire treatment and her jaw just like hit the floor. Like she was like, what? And I said, it was a thing that she could control. Right. Like she could move her body right. for this hour. Or right. sometimes she would, we would do restorative work and she would go home and she wouldn't have slept for three days. And she would, she was a neighbor. So she would go home and she would text me hours later and said, I just got the best six hours of sleep. Like, <laughs> Yeah. That's true. And and even with some of us that are on these aromatase inhibitors, yes, where we get all kinds of body aches. Um, I, I was doing the restorative yoga in Virginia as well. They don't have that here. I do take a half of a class on Wednesdays where it's, it's a stretching, but it's really restorative yoga movements. Yeah. But I did find that uh, I do find that working out, exercising, and doing some type of stretching exercise, not the yoga yoga, but the restorative yoga that you talk about is really so beneficial mentally and physically that um, I, I do highly recommend anyone going through treatment to try to try to keep active. Absolutely. Especially 
when you're on medications that can affect the muscles and the joints, like aromatase inhibitors are are well known for doing. I found that if I hit the right amount of walking um, when I was on those medications, if I didn't get in the miles of walking and I do a lot of movement. So I always tell people my miles might have been, might be different. Like you might be able to walk a mile and get the same results that I did. But if I hit three miles in a day, it could be one mile, three different times in the day. It could be a mile and a half in the morning, a mile and a half in the afternoon. It could be three out, three miles at one shot. The next day, no aching. If I missed a day or I didn't quite hit my number, then I would, I would know, like my body would be like, hello. Yeah. (laughs) Could you move me more? Yeah. Yes. I have found that I have to keep moving, that if I sit too long and I get up, I'm very, very stiff. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a good thing that we, it makes us keep moving, right? Yes. Movement is definitely medicine. Keeps things circulating in our body. Yes. (laughs) definitely medicine. Well, thank you so, so very much for talking with me today. I so appreciate your time and your story is very inspirational. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Myra, for sharing your journey with us today. We all have a unique story, yet so much of what we face often feels more similar and alike than we really realize at the time. One of the most important topics that came up today was this idea of putting ourselves in positive places, places of empathy and solutions. Those are special places where we can share our challenges and seek the benefit of the positive experiences of those who've come before us. I'm on a mission to interview new guests every week to bring more connection and share more stories of cancer survivors, caregivers, and support organizations. I would love to connect with you to hear your story. You can connect with me by booking a coffee chat through the link in the show description or in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. You can also find me on Instagram at the Jennifer Cochran. Many of my past guests are in the Facebook group, along with other people just like you who may even be navigating the same questions you are. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.